Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's show, Commissioner Gary Black has led the Georgia Department of Agriculture for more than a decade, but he's never led during a pandemic, so he'll join us to share how the agency has been doing through all of this. Plus, state lawmakers want to limit conversations about race in public school classrooms, but what do students think? Well, you hear from one. And access to mental health care services, local redistricting fights. It's been a busy week at the state capitol. So we'll get an update from our politics reporters, Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. Those conversations coming up. But first this, Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr says he is joining a nationwide investigation into the social media app TikTok. And I'm sure you're all familiar with that. And whether the company puts the public, especially children, at risk. The investigation will include a review of allegations regarding mental and physical harm in young users and whether TikTok had knowledge of the dangers. It also focused on the techniques used by TikTok to boost young user engagement. And according to reports, peep this, the average user spent nearly 15 hours on the platform for the month of March. In other news, with just about a month to go in this year's legislative session, Georgia lawmakers continue considering those bills involving the state's growing electric vehicle sector. For instance, legislation is pending that would determine how much involvement Georgia Power should have with EV charging stations. Another would allow Rivian to join Tesla in selling its electric vehicles directly to Georgia customers. Now, Democratic Senator Kim Jackson marked Electric Vehicle Day at the Capitol Thursday by calling for more infrastructure spending to support e-vehicles. We have such great, great landscape here across Georgia. And so we need the charging stations that can get us from the mountains to the coast and back home again. Jackson also called on manufacturers to find ways to make electric vehicles affordable so more folks can make the switch from gas-powered vehicles. E-cigarettes, e-cigarettes are one step closer to being treated the same as cigarettes under Georgia law. The Georgia House passed legislation this week that adds vaping to Georgia's Smoke-Free Air Act. That means vaping in places like restaurants would be treated as a misdemeanor. And a handful of lawmakers voted against it, citing that that call should actually be left up to business owners. The bill now goes to the state Senate. And a new truck driving school is now open in DeKalb County. Truckers are a critical link in the nation's supply chain, and the industry continues to see a massive shortage of qualified drivers. As we'll hear from Emil Moffitt, the company behind the new facility hopes to attract new truckers of all ages. Gregory Wynn spent his career doing repairs for AT&T. Well, I was ready to retire, but I wasn't ready to stop working. So he turned to the trucking industry and enrolled at Roadmaster Driver School. He says training includes time in the classroom, on-the-road instruction, and a lot of studying of both the mechanics of the truck and the law. Never realized how challenging and and all the things you have to know. I got a lot more respect for truck drivers. Uh, They actually know a lot more than you think. When he's done with his training, he just needs to take a state test before he can hit the road full-time. His late career change is welcome news for an industry that, by some estimates, is in need of 80,000 truck drivers. The new Roadmaster facility was built in Conley in an industrial part of DeKalb County. It's the company's 20th school in the nation and third in Georgia. DeKalb County Commissioner Larry Johnson says the location will be convenient for younger drivers who are interested in a career in trucking. I mean, I got three major high schools around here that can take advantage of this type of training and they can go on and and jump right into the middle class. And that path for younger drivers to become truckers could be smoother soon. A new pilot program at the federal level will lower the minimum age for interstate truck drivers from 21 to 18. 
Roadmaster's Brad Ball says his company is ready to offer the extra training needed to get younger drivers ready for the road. They're going to have longer training, very safe trucks, the instructors are required to have more experience, and the carriers are required to track their progress and report on any incidences that occur. Ball says he expects the new driving school in South the Cab to produce 600 new truckers a year. Emil Moffitt, WABE News. And coming up next, Georgia's Agricultural Commissioner Gary Black joins me. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. $73.3 billion. That's approximately how much Georgia's agricultural economy produces, literally and figuratively. Now, this information is provided by the University of Georgia, their Center for Agribusiness and Economic Development. Topping the production list, peanuts, broilers, which are chickens, pecans or pecans, don't send me an email, blueberries and spring onions. But there's a lot more to Georgia's agribusiness, and like other industries, yes, we know COVID-19 hit farmers and producers pretty hard. So is Georgia's agribusiness recovering? Well, Gary Black is currently serving in his third term as the state's agriculture commissioner, and he joins me now. Commissioner Black, welcome back to the program. Good to see you. Rose, it's good to see you again, too. Glad we could be back together, and uh, I think we had a little linkage problem uh, a couple of months ago, but anyway, I'm, I'm glad to hear your voice. Thanks yeah. for the opportunity. Okay, you've been busy. Listen, two years ago this <laughs> month, no one had any idea the, the impact of the coronavirus. And, Commissioner, when you think back to that time, what were your concerns for the state's uh, agribusiness then? Rose, when the governor's first executive order came back, because we were, we were looking, uh, you know, down south first to what was happening in Florida because – you know, from based upon the commodity, they're three, four, five, six weeks ahead of us. And, of course, they, they hit some of those early restrictions. Then we hit ours and really saw a, a, a freeze of a different type mm-hmm. uh, for fruits and vegetables. It wasn't the freeze of the weather, but the, just the freeze of the executive order and uh, the shutdown of business. And it really horrified everybody. Uh, we We saw some... Uh, things that we never want to see again uh, of actually milk going down the drain in, in Florida. And so we, we, uh, we, uh, we had to get our senses about us very quickly. Uh, we responded very quickly and uh, working with some uh, great community leaders in and around Atlanta, but, but also then, it, uh, you know, just kind of basically hoping and praying. We had a, we had a good vegetable crop on its way and a good peach crop, good, a good uh, fruit and vegetable complex was ready to respond. And, you know, when we all returned home and, and kind of got our legs up under us, uh, oddly enough, the consumer responded to Georgia Grown in an unprecedented way. Mm-hmm. And while many of us, you know, other people were suffering, the fruit and vegetable sector did did quite well, but we we had we certainly had to be innovative in those early days. Absolutely, I remember reading a piece. I think it was in the Valdosta Daily Times. It was a eighty-two percent of farmers were experiencing a revenue loss. That was back in twenty twenty. So, Commissioner, have farmers and producers overall have they rebounded, or will it still take some time here? Now, Rose, we've seen that we have seen a very positive response in commodity prices in in many sectors. Just as fruit and vegetable in 2020, let's remember there was an initial shock, mm-hmm. and then people went to the grocery. We all were we were all at home, and they responded with their pocketbook and those transactions at the grocery store. So fresh fruit and vegetable came out of the early season of the of the pandemic, and and actually pretty much record form. Sweet corn was at all time high. People were able to make a lot of money. As we look going forward uh, into other traditional crops like peanut like cotton corn now uh, uh, the markets have responded cotton's uh, at a uh, 
in a very strong position this year. One of the problems is inputs are much higher. Fertilizer, mm-hmm. uh, some of our crop protection chemicals, you've got some big challenges moving into 2022. But, but I think for most part, uh, people rebounded quite well. Uh, pecan crop last year was horrible for most people. Mm-hmm. So that one sector is, uh, is, is uh, you know, kind of reeling from three years ago with Hurricane Michael when we, we talk so often. Uh, into a, a um, pretty much one of the sorriest crops many people have ever had last year. That that one still gives us concern moving forward. But I would still I would say our uh, we enter twenty twenty two with the uh, you know if we're trying to get a, a barometer uh, reading of what folks' attitudes are, uh, they're concerned about supply chain still concerned mm-hmm. about uh, the growing cost to inputs. But at least we've seen some commodity prices respond uh, with with some hope out there. And now, of course, with the inflation, what concerns do you have regarding that and for Georgia's farmers well, and producers? Well, that's where we see, you know, uh, unbelievable spikes in, in our input costs. Fertilizer, uh, I, I usually use commercial fertilizer on my, uh, on my farm in commerce. I just received a text. Before we uh, started our our, uh, uh, our our conversation from my son, that we have located uh, chicken litter that we will use as our nitrogen source this year, just because we're we're trying to cut a few corners on cost. Uh, fertilizers up four times. Uh, that's that's unbelievable. I, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, farmers actually. By the way, commodity prices are not up four times. Mm-hmm. Diesel just... is up, uh, you know, in by double, and mm-hmm. and so they're facing a lot of those inflationary aspects on the input side. It will be very interesting to see how that continues to uh, translate over into the consumer side, because I do believe it's going to have an impact. I think you're, a lot of analysts agree with you on that. I want to go back to the pandemic for a moment, because given the federal and state resources that were available for growers and producers, was it enough, Commissioner, for most of them to get through? What did you hear from folks? Yep. And, and, and Rose, I'm familiar of the study that you were quoting earlier, and there's been a, maybe one or two more iterations of that that did have a, you know, a normal up and down uh, perspective. Uh, I, th- I think, I think when we got to the end of it, we 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 uh, you know we progressed through the uh, uh, through that period. Uh, the, the, the most folks kind of got through it a little bit better than they thought. Uh, we had we were still enduring some um, market uh, issues with China. I think mm-hmm. you and I talked about that one mm-hmm. time about. Uh, that were that that can and USDA continued to fill it fulfill its responsibility and the Congress for the most part I think stepped up to you know to help be you know provide some of those safety net deals uh, but uh, you know I go back we we may get into this later but I I just harken back to a call I got from the cab CEO Mike Thurman who's a good friend and he had received his first CARES money and. Uh, for the for DeKalb County, I think 125 million, and and I just remember Mike's words, you know, almost the quote. He said, "Man, I got to feed my people. I need a current. I need a turnkey job. I need a turnkey job." Mm-hmm. And I said, "What do you want to do, Mike?" And I said, "He said, I just got to feed my people. Can you help me get the boxes together? Can you help me do? Because I just I need I need you to do it. I thank you that he trusted me to do it. We work with some of our our best vendors at the." Uh, Georgia uh, Department of Agriculture is our statewide, uh, our state market out in Forest Park. Uh, Nikki Gregory and others, uh, Athena Produce, Collins Brothers, others stepped up. And we were able there very quickly to do some things that actually helped DeKalb County Mm -hmm. and then replicated itself eight or nine times. uh, And and it was a great partnership, but it was things like that rose where Farmers were able to number one get a fair price for their product. Mm-hmm. We were able to get an organized package for people, and the vendor was able to get a fair price for doing that. And at the same time, the CEO and the Cab County government they got a fair price, you know, for for the deal, and the people got really good Georgia grown product. Yeah. And, and that was one of the 
Uh, when I look back over doing this job, uh, you know, standing beside Mike Thurman in DeKalb County and helping put food in people's cars when, the, when, the, when they needed it is going to be one of the more satisfying things of, of, of the last few years. I tell you, Commissioner, in, in continuing to do this program during the pandemic and so many conversations we had about the greatest need that people needed was food. Um, and definitely so many folks stepping up. You know, I spoke with a blueberry farmer uh, throughout all of this who told me, you know, another issue was hiring workers. Um, are sure. we seeing that return? We, we have, I think H2A, our, 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 our qualified legal uh, guest worker program operated by the federal government. I think last year, most, uh, most people found their needs met. Uh, not as many timing issues. And that's where sometimes my my phone starts ringing is when people have done their paperwork in November or December and they have an expectation of the federal government in March and then all of a sudden we're creeping towards that date and, you know, you, you get a week or two out and you haven't heard confirmation or, in fact, the contract comes in a little late. That's a problem. I'd still love to see us be able to work together uh that's a solution that I just I can't believe has much uh, difference of opinion on because if, if we're going to have a legal program, then the federal government needs to deliver on the on the on the time schedule that's agreed upon. But uh, there's still rose an ongoing, uh, uh, you know, I think you and I've probably talked about this before too. Uh, every farmer I know that that has jobs available, they would love for that job pool to come from a local source. Sure. to be reliable. Uh, unfortunately, in some parts of production agriculture, that's just not, uh, that's a very, very thin market and, and, and a very difficult one. That's why we have the H-2A program to help fill well, those gaps. And Commissioner, as you know, there are a lot of optics around that. One may say is, well, first of all, it, it is hard work and one sure. may have an issue with what, you know, the wages, but also too with that H-2A, that visa program, as you know, the DOJ in that investigation, look, clearly there is an oversight and regulation issue here. Folks are being exploited by predators. Um, and for those yeah. that don't know, the H-2A visa program allows non-U.S. citizens into the country to, for temporary uh, agricultural work. But they were being exploited. That is an issue. What can your department, what, what needs to be done yeah. to overhaul this? Because there's a lot of, you, we can point fingers at a whole lot of different folks here, but that's a problem. Sure, that's a problem, but but you also, I mean, there are many problems in society, uh, Rose, and there are bad actors in every program. They're, they're, you know, they're uh, uh, they're they're bad folks in politics. They're probably bad bad folks in media. You know. Oh, there are but, no bad folks and, in media. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, no, I got well, you. I, you know, I know what you're current, saying. Current. Current class, current folks that are talking to one another, not included, I hope. Uh, but uh, uh, so it, whatever oversight should have been taking place uh, from the federal level, it didn't occur. And, and I, you know, I can't speak to this particular case because it's, it's certainly ongoing. Uh, I, but people that who do wrong should go to jail. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, anybody that's exploited is unconscionable to me and to you and every everyone of your listeners. Uh but it, that shouldn't soil the entire H-2A program because, uh, I, you know, my daughter used to manage a, 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 a contract. And mm -hmm. that, that, you talk about a family situation in that particular uh, deal uh, that she, she worked for a company that had, uh, had a group of folks that are just returned every year, couldn't be happier, great housing, great benefits. And, 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 and good, you know, pay is correct. And all that happens. Taxes are remitted. Uh, all that takes place. Uh, I, I do hope there's going to be more watchdog activities. Mm -hmm. I, I would still love to see this outside of the scope of the Un United States Department of Labor. I would love to see the H-2A program in the United States Department of Agriculture, where there's uh, there's just more there's more savvy with respect to agriculture than just being a number on a paper. I, I, I think that could be helpful. Uh, but uh, as this case moves forward, it it should be, uh, you know, it should be, 
There's no doubt about it. Those who've committed, uh, if, if it's found that they've been convicted, they ought to serve max. And I, I just, there's no place for that in society, no place for that, in, and certainly in Georgia agriculture. I think a lot of folks agree with you on that. I want to get one more question as it relates to that. Then, then you would support, then, there should be also some penalties, if not charges, for those if they knowingly are participating. Uh, uh, you know, and, and, and because, look, no one, look, you and I both know. And understand when when you are trying to survive and you're trying to feed your family and you're trying to make ends meet and folks are, are, are these conditions, brutal conditions on some of these South Georgia farms. Yeah. And then they're being exploited and they may even be threatened with, you know, losing their, you, you know, the all the optics around that. So there should be some penalties for everyone that's involved. Correct. Absolutely. It's wrong. It's, it's morally wrong. It's biblically wrong. It's uh, it's just not, uh, you know, and so to the extent, you know, the discovery phase and who did what, when, I, I don't know. But, you you know, that's something absolutely we don't that has no place in society uh, uh, on on the not to say the pendulum quite going the other way, though, Rose. Mm-hmm. The, the other side of the legal aspect of guest worker programs is that there are those out there from a standpoint of, uh, I know, I know farmers who have been sued in Georgia who, who meet every letter of the law, but say for instance, uh, there are a group of folks that come together after work and they desire to play cards and what, and, and I'm sure that happens. And they push their beds together so that they that's the way they choose to do that. And perhaps the furniture isn't moved back exactly where it's supposed to be, but that following day is when the audit takes place from the Department of Labor. That citation is on the farmer. Mm-hmm. If, if, a, if somebody got a little rowdy and put a foot through a screen in the housing, that citation's on the farmer. And so I would love to see a lot more common sense applied on that side of the equation, too. But this is what we're talking that, about. Yeah, but yeah, that's I mean, different than criminal indictments. Right. But, but that's more, different than folks being abused. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, you know, listen. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Come on. absolutely. Yeah. Because there's a difference in an administrative function and yeah. a criminal thing. Because what we start about is the criminal thing, and it has no place in that. I'll help be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Let's talk about then in, in moving forward in, in the future. You talked about how farmers and producers and growers weathered the storm, so to speak. Uh, what is your outlook right now, as long as you are still agriculture commissioner sure. for Georgia? Uh, let's let's talk about some of the bright spots. Uh, citrus is uh, is really on, a, on an upswing and has, I think, a very uh, uh a very positive future in Georgia. Uh, we're at about 3,000 acres now, Rose. Uh, could it be 30,000? Eh, maybe. Uh, I mean, we have, we certainly have the capability. I, I don't, it's going to be interesting to see how the market uh, continues to grow for that. And it's not just a satsuma of mandarin orange. We have some varieties of grapefruit, of uh, I think lime and lemon, uh, some other varieties of citrus, navel oranges. That is, uh, that are, that's that are, surprising. Uh, is that because I, of yeah. we're warmer, climate change? That's someone no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. No, I, I, I don't, no, let's not, that, that, that's not the connection because it's it's more of a varietal development. We've had some really good variety trials at our, that has the cold hardiness, the disease resistance, those kinds of things that have that've come more. Uh, through our College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences and the, the, the uh, Coastal Plains Experiment Station in Tifton. Hmm. And so it's pretty cool to see those varieties develop. We're on the front side of that, making sure we don't cut our nose off to spite our face because uh, there's a citrus greening disease that is devastating. It's actually, it's, it's just, uh, there's no cure for it. We've seen some of that in South Texas, uh, I think in Louisiana a little bit, uh, and in Florida. Uh, and the advent of and the growth of this industry, one of the things we've been doing is making uh, sure that our ongoing rules are requiring that we have clean rootstock, certified rootstock before we ever get started. Because mm-hmm. you don't want to, you don't want to be sure you don't 
uh, again, uh, uh, mess up a good thing before it ever gets really started. And so citrus is good. Uh, uh, April 12, you probably saw the announcement is the uh, long awaited uh, decision. We just announced this week. That'll be about uh, onion season is, uh, is about a week ahead of time this year. And uh, they feel very good. The crop looks wonderful. We have about 10,000 acres this year. And so uh, the world's sweetest onion will be available for <laughs> consumers to uh, enjoy beginning April 12. Uh, growers are very, uh, uh, very positive, very excited about this year. Uh, short crop in, in, um, short crop in, uh, in Mexico, uh, short crop uh, in, in South Texas, where we, you know, they have some, uh, some uh, products that they call sweet onions until ours uh, get on, get <laughs> look on at the you. market. A uh, couple things. Wow, that's what, look, look, look. <laughs> but you know, you should, but you know what? Yeah, Commissioner, you should, you should, you should rep for your onions, of course. A couple things before I let you get out of here. One, Commissioner yes, Black, you will go down in history if y'all can make a way to grow some avocados in Georgia. But we know that. <laughs> Uh, that's a challenge awesome. I, I, I had some i had some great fresh guacamole yesterday uh, yeah i wish it i wish it had our brand on it but it didn't and finally you told lawmakers that during those budget hearings that retention was a problem you you said you look at hr you get data from hr almost weekly how's it looking now and and do you all <laughs> need to look at your your salary i asked every commissioner that i've been talking with have you all looked at maybe we need to start, you know, adding a little bit more? I know with the state races, state raises from Governor Kemp, but what more can you all do to not only attract new employees, but re- retain them? Well, uh, Rose, I, I was fortunate enough earlier uh, in, in the, this year to present my 12th and final budget to the State Department of Agriculture of Georgia. And then I have made this as a central part of my presentation all 12 years whether the official part in the big committee or the subcommittee or preliminary discussions with the governor's office of planning and uh, uh office of uh, the opb budget and planning uh, uh planning and budget we're uh, uh, we're expected to field the best team every day to protect your food to ensure Georgia uh, protect us from foreign animal disease, mm-hmm. to market our products, to protect our com- our companion animals, and we have a very very good team. If we expect these folks to stay here and run this government and fulfill the responsibilities of law and what our consumers and farmers want us to do, then we have to be competitive. We want all the way get there get there with with industry. But we have to provide the right benefits. We have to provide a competitive career path. I am thankful we've made significant resp- uh, 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 improvement there. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not as aggressive as I would have liked uh, to have, uh, uh, you know, kind of put an exclamation point on 12 years. The governor's plan is, is exceptional. Uh, we have... Uh, just put together a a rubric for uh, I will be able to pass off that will show a a three and five year progression and then deeper into an individual's career. Uh, we believe with the five thousand and the, the the this package this time, mm-hmm. it's going to get us a long way towards being able to fund our complete operation with respect to the steps we need we believe would be uh, appropriate for attracting and retaining the next generation and then allow us smaller increases each year mm-hmm. to keep up. We believe we've found somewhat of a unicorn on Excel to uh, <laughs> uh, pass off and to present to the appropriators as we continue to move on this session. So I, I am deeply committed to that. I'm thankful for the progress we've made. I hope that, that uh, future legislators, uh, legislatures will be uh, be able to buy into the plan that we'll be able to stamp it at the end of this run. All right. Commissioner Gary Black, Georgia's Agricultural Commissioner, thank you so much for the many conversations over the years. Thank you. I'm grateful to you, Rose. Appreciate your friendship. Yes, ma'am.
And Closer Look continues on 90.1 WABE Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia lawmakers have had a lot to say, and I do mean a lot, this legislative session about how students and teachers should talk about and discuss the R word, race, and the other R word, racism. Republicans are pushing a number of bills that would restrict teaching what they call divisive concepts in public schools. Now, since we've heard a lot of adults talking about the measure, what do students think? My name is Anna Villavaso, and I'm a senior at Decatur High School. Um, So I live in Decatur. Um, I'm kind of known for really encouraging conversations about race. I try to really emphasize how much talking about race in general is important, because if you're going to, I guess, advocate for other people's rights, you should at least know the experiences of whom you're advocating for. Anna recently spoke with Closer Look senior producer Sam Whitehead about the push from some lawmakers to limit discussions of of race in the classroom, starting with our hopes for a few particular pieces of legislation. Yeah, definitely in the near term, I want especially the legislators to realize that the four bills, especially that they're proposing, that would be Senate Bill 375, Senate Bill 377, House Bill 888 and House Bill 1084, that those bills are the divisive concept that they are trying to eliminate, the fact that they are trying to step their toes in the wrong puddle, the fact that they do not belong in an educational setting and they continuously do not allow teachers to do their job correctly, emphasizes the need for changes. And this is not the type of change that we need. We don't need conversations hindered rather than encouraged. And then in the long term, I hope especially um, legislators and just anybody within our community and within our state and country realizes that students and the youth of this country are the future. And so if we're really standing up for something that we really do believe that it has an impact on our future, and that is why we're continuously emphasizing that, hey, like, I know you're in charge, but what you're doing here is wrong because we know that their policies and legislation will directly affect us, not only now, but in the future. And that can just have so many unintended consequences. And it really just creates a more divisive society. Just the lack of talking about these, quote, divisive concepts really creates more of a divisive society. What do you think would be lost if conversations about race that made people feel uncomfortable, because that really does seem to be the standard lawmakers are using here, conversations that make people uncomfortable. What do you think would be lost if those kinds of conversations were somehow not allowed in classrooms? I think it's just one word like knowledge. Like I think if we eliminate having these conversations, we're completely taking a step back. And because in the past, like especially in regards to race, the people in charge have just completely ignored the people who are in charge in so many situations and ways such to the point where they didn't even like care what we went through or they didn't even care. Like, I feel like this is just really just taking a step back in that direction in the sense that we're not going to care what other people think. We're just going to make the rules because they make us feel more comfortable And because of that, we're just completely promoting ignorance in the sense that we are not allowing ourselves to recognize the true story. We're just only painting a picture of the people who won rather than the people who have actively been oppressed and who are trying to speak out. And so in that sense, we're completely creating a more divided society because we are just segregating ourselves because we don't know of each other's experiences. The thing that I can't stop thinking about, um, maybe it's good to be made uncomfortable by some of the things uh, that have happened in this country in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I think discomfort is what allows us to heal, to learn. And so the fact that legislators are trying to eliminate discomfort really shows how fearful they are of it. The fact they will not allow themselves to feel uncomfortable because they think, um, I guess, topics about divisive concepts will make them feel guilty. And in no way are these conversations meant to make them feel guilty at all. It's really just to spread awareness of what atrocities or what mindsets have been pushed onto 
especially minoritized communities that have hurt them in the past and why we need to fix them ASAP. Wow. Anna, a senior student at Decatur High School. She was speaking with Closer Look senior producer Sam Whitehead about the push from some state lawmakers to limit discussions of race in public classroom, public school classrooms. Speaking of lawmakers, people at the state capitol this week saw something pretty rare. It was a Republican House speaker. It was Republican House speaker David Austin, one of the most powerful lawmakers at the Gold Dome. He was testifying during a committee hearing. And of course, he was speaking in favor of a mental health care reform bill he's been championing all this season. Session. This is just the beginning of what I expect will be a multi-year conversation. We did not get in this place we are today overnight and we will not get out overnight but i can't think of a better big first step to take than this bill now the measure would in part make health insurers treat mental health and substance use disorder the same as physical health and the mental health parity act is expected to get a vote in the georgia house next week this is just one of many bills wab's political reporting dynamic duo of Raul Bali and Sam Greenglass have been watching closely, and they both join me now for more. Welcome back. Hey, Rose. You all want to? Rose. You all want to add Anna to the politics team because that might be kind of cool. Hey, we have so much to cover. We're always looking for help. <laughs> let me and let me start. House Bill uh, 1084, the one you were just uh, the interview you just heard, is going to be on the floor across the hall from me in the Georgia House here in the next few minutes. That is going to be interesting. And if you need to break away to cover all of that, please, we understand because that's going to be what they call I'm here for you. You know how many people have said that, Raul? (laughs) (laughs) But let's go back and let's reflect on that committee meeting this week featuring Speaker uh, David Rostin. How big a deal really was it to see him testify? It was. It's when you look up and see the House Speaker in a regular hearing room, it, it gets everybody, it, it, it was sending a message. It's sending a message to lawmakers. It's sending message to advocates and supporters. It's probably even sending a message to opponents and people who have issues with the bill that, uh, that the speaker is, is wanting to people to understand that this is a major priority to him. Did you get a chance to um, talk to him at all? I know sometimes you have one-on-ones with him, Raul, about uh, reaction. And it appears that this is, look, this is, he has support from both sides of the aisle here. Uh, nobody really objecting to any of this. The The objections are that are happening down here are in the details. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's I've not heard somebody say, I'm completely against this. It's It's things like law enforcement that, you know, when someone, once a situation has been de-escalated, who's responsible for transportation? Is that law enforcement or mm-hmm. an ambulance? That's one example. Should there be a registry of, of kids when they have interactions with law enforcement or a hospital with mental health issues? Should there be a registry? That registry has come in and out of the bill a couple of times now. Currently, it's in the bill. It's, it's details. How do you handle uh, language, foreign language questions, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- those are, it's all in the details. Those are the questions that people are raising. Can the current state infrastructure for mental health handle this bill? It's another question that's being raised. So it's, it's, there's no one completely against it, but it's, how do you get through all these details? Cause it's such a large piece of legislation. And also enforcing, cause I also want to just focus on the parity part of this, obviously, which is what it's named because the federal parity law, it hasn't really been enforced in Georgia or who hasn't been doing their job or to be fair, has anyone been doing that job? Yeah. So federal law basically has left it up to the States to decide how to enforce the law. Um, for example, California passed a really strict parity bill in 2020, um, which would apply to even more things like addiction, uh, for example. But in Georgia right now, it's not really a state, really a straightforward process for say, if you're a person who thinks that they've been denied parity to pursue a grievance and actually um, receive some kind of recourse. Um, it's kind of, Right now, just up to individuals to recognize and know that, hey, this service was deemed by my insurance company to be medically unnecessary, but I don't think it should be. Um, And my understanding is that you're supposed to take a grievance to the Department of Insurance 
or if you're using Medicaid, I, I think you would go to the Department of Community Health to make a complaint. Um, but there was one study that found, I think that in 2018 in Georgia, they gave a failing grade to the state for behavior health parity. Mm. So clearly a lot of this enforcement is not happening here right now. Mm. And look, it comes down to this. It comes down to political will and funding, whether that comes from the governor, whether that comes from state lawmakers, whether that comes from the state insurance commissioner's office. And what we're seeing right now is there is political will and there's money from both sides to make this happen. So we can expect this, though, to to obviously pass is what you're saying to Raul. I expect it to pass both sides. The question is, what does it look like? Mm -hmm. What changes? And, and so here's what advocates and supporters are telling me. Number one, when it the, first the bill is going to be on the House floor on Tuesday and then go over to the Senate. The questions that are being brought to me are, number one, battleground number one, the definitions, the definitions of mental health services. That's going to be so important because how mental health and substance abuse is defined is going to decide all the inform all this all the decisions by insurance companies if that definition becomes really narrow or watered mm -hmm. down insurance companies can reject anything that's where the battleground is is really going to be about those definitions mm. also medicaid is handled that's going to be an important conversation because medicaid is such a big provider of mental health services the questions around law enforcement and transportation are also going to be important those are kind of the big things that 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 people are mentioning to me that are going to be battled. And finally, also, one thing I didn't mention, the co-responder models, the idea of sending police officers and behavior health professionals together in the field to respond to mental health crisis. And we've seen some counties that, that do that. They have programs where, where they do that. So it's good, very the, interesting. The folks from, yeah, the folks from Forsyth County, they, they brought their team here to the legislature and they had this great conversation where lawmakers got to ask the most basic questions about how they operate. They don't wear police uniforms. They go in unmarked cars. That was the kind of conversations that are being had down here at the Capitol. Sam, I want to come back to you because you've been covering a bit of a controversy. There's always a controversy sometimes in Gwinnett County involving the R word redistricting of the county commission and school board. Tell us what's happening with there. So just kind of briefly for some background context, typically what happens is that local officials in these counties, they draw their own local redistricting maps. You know, this happens right after the census, like we do for state house and congressional districts. And then it goes to the state legislature and the lawmakers kind of give them a rubber stamp or green light on the maps that they already drew. Uh, this time around, Republicans in the legislature scrapped those local maps in just a few counties, and then they drew their own maps. And these maps were more friendly to Republican candidates. Um, the counties that this are happening, you know, I said it's just a few. It's these rapidly growing suburban communities like Gwinnett, like Cobb. And in Gwinnett, Republicans redrew the county commission map to make a district situated kind of like up in the northern part of the county. It's a whiter district and it's more Republican friendly. Um, and Republicans are doing this because they say that people up in this part of the county, they haven't been represented on the commission. Hmm. But what Democrats are saying is this redrawing is diluting the power of voters of color. It's squeezing them into these other three districts. And all this back and forth illustrates the tensions over demographics and political representation that are so pronounced in Metro Atlanta right now. You know, these counties are starting to elect school boards and mm -hmm. county commissions that are increasingly democratic and people of color. And Republicans are kind of looking for ways to preserve some of the political power in these places that they used to have there. But where do you think this measure is going now? It's pretty much sealed and done. Um, Governor Kemp has signed maps for I think all of these controversial counties now, including Gwinnett, including Cobb, lawsuits, of course, are always possible, but there's basically no time left here. I mean, qualifying deadlines are next week for candidates to decide what districts they're going to run in. So mm -hmm. these maps are, are going to be the maps. Well, and speaking of that, uh, the news this week, a federal judge uh, stopped in there for to throw out 
the recently redrawn congressional maps maps in Metro Atlanta, um, because and, and Judge Jones cited, he looks, we're so close to primaries. And you, as you're right, Sam, we're ahead of candidate qualifying next week, candidates qualifying next week. Uh, what are you hearing, though? Either one of you can tackle this. What are you hearing lawmakers uh, in response to that ruling from from Judge Jones? I mean, the interesting thing, if you look inside this ruling, of course, the top line is that he's citing it's too close to the elections to change the maps now. But he is saying that the plaintiffs did kind of seem to demonstrate that these maps may have violated the Voting Rights Act. So there might be claims still in here Mm -hmm. that these maps violate the VRA. And so to caveat all of this, this ruling is basically was a request for a preliminary injunction. So it's just applying to 2020 to 2022, these maps Mm -hmm. and this election before us right now, litigation is going to keep going on about some of these bigger questions about whether the maps violate the Voting Rights Act. And so these maps could change for 2024 and for the rest of the decade. What's key right now is these are the maps that are in place for 2022 and the candidates who are declaring next week for this coming election. Mm, Let's talk about some money. Where's the budget right now? We know it's one piece of work that Lawmakers have to get done during the session. Georgia has two, the amended budget for the current fiscal year and, of course, the spending plan for the upcoming year. Uh, Where are we on this budget? Everyone's happy about the budget. I don't know if they're happy is the right word, but. (laughs) So in terms of the amended budget, that's the budget that's currently funding the state government through June 30th. Uh, That passed the Senate this week. It's now in a conference committee. I expect it to, to to the work to be wrapped up on it next week and in the governor's hands to sign. Probably the most interesting thing it was it was in my story yesterday was a, a pay raise for state lawmakers was removed out of that bill. Um, it was it was kind of, kind of done on the sly, but uh, that's been taken out of there. But otherwise, I expect that to wrap up the the bigger budget, the budget that starts July first and runs through the year next year um, is is currently in the House and they're working on that right now. Let's jump ahead to next week. What are you all watching for? Raul, I'll stay with you. Candidate qualifying. That's going to be number one. It's uh, trying to wonder what surprises still await us. We've we, you know, already got some some interesting names that, that we hadn't either heard or expected. We've had some retirements. You know, Kwanzaa Hall jumping in uh, for the lieutenant governor's mm-hmm. race would, would be one. Um, you, you know, we're, to see if other people are going to jump, you know, Winfred Dukes, a state representative from mm-hmm. South Georgia, jumping into the Democratic race for for agriculture secretary. It, it's that's that's the interesting part to see who runs. But also, I always talk about it, the circus and the pomp and circumstance of, of, of members of Congress and the governor and everybody making their way into the room to sign the, the paperwork, put their money down. Um, hold press conferences. Um, it, it's 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 you know for for some of us it was memorable two years ago because for for me it was the last time I saw John Lewis mm-hmm. uh, before he passed away. But it, it's it's a whole it's a whole atmosphere down here when you do have qualifying. Mm-hmm. Again, we've already mentioned um, the amended state budget should be on the floor for a final vote next week, along with uh, the mental health reform bill being getting its its first vote over in the House of Representatives. Sam. What about you? Just to loop back to kind of where we started and the conversation that preceded us, um, these divisive concepts bills, um, you know, we've been talking about the critical race theory bills. Um, The Senate version has been stuck in committee. It had its third hearing with no vote to move it out of committee last week. As Raul mentioned, the House today is taking up a similar version. It does not have the financial punishments for schools. It does not apply to colleges and universities. So I'm thinking that this less extensive bill could be the one that actually gets to the governor's desk. And we'll we'll start to get some more clues about which one is going to move forward uh, as soon as today. Now, crossover day is not until the following week. Uh, Any bills that you all feel like just probably will not survive? That many, huh? Beyond Beyond Buckhead, I don't think there's anything that's that's dead dead yet. Um, I think the most interesting one that I keep hearing is gambling. And I keep hearing the idea that there were Republicans who want to support gambling, but will not jump on board until after qualifying so they don't pick up a more conservative, socially conservative opponent. So I think that's the reason when people ask me, why isn't gambling moving? I think it's because they have to wait until after qualifying. Hmm. But I can't think of any other bills that are truly 
dead, dead beyond beyond Buckhead Cityhood. Every time I hear that, I think of Monty Python, mostly dead. <laughs> I'm showing my age here. <laughs> I am too. Thank goodness it's Friday. Uh, Sam, <laughs> you want to add anything to that? I mean... The thing that Raul was telling us on the Gold Dome Scramble podcast this week is that there are ways to resurrect d- bills that don't make it through crossover by attaching them to other bills in a vehicle. So uh, what might be dead might not actually be dead. Or mostly dead. <laughs> Sorry. Raul Bali and Sam Greenglass are WABE politics reporters recapping the recent week of action at the state capitol and what's coming up next week. Thanks to both of you. I really appreciate it. Uh, Raul, anything on the livestock or any other mammal legislation that we should know about not at the moment we know real the only thing that kind of moved in that neck of the wood the raw milk bill passed uh, the house of representatives yesterday really yeah Interesting. so that yeah. could that's seeing some it's that's mostly alive is what you're saying it is that has traction and and i there's a possibility there's going to be the legalization of raw milk in georgia wow all right. Well, we shall stay tuned. Thank you both, as always, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good work. Thanks. Great to be on. Thanks, Rose. Have a great weekend. You too. You too. Producer Daniel is dancing in the studio. You said that was his raw milk. This is raw milk bumper music. All right. Okay, we'll go with that. Your generation. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producers, Sam Whitehead, Janine Edder, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razale are our producers. Kevin Rinker, he's right. He rides a bike, y'all. He's our engineer. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, as you all love to do rose at wabe.org and of course you can always find the entire program online at wabe.org slash closer look and of course listen to closer look weeknights at 7 p.m as well as in our podcast subscribe to closer look wherever you like and remember check out our wabe.org slash paycheck it's for our series paycheck to paycheck and also this has nothing to do with saying goodbye but the batman is now in theaters I'm a big superhero movies person. Let me know what you think of the movie. Give me your critique, your review. Let me know if I should go see it. Stay tuned at 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org slash election 2024.